This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we begin with the Yellow Vest movement in France, known for the Yellow Vest the protesters wear, and we then take a deeper look at the stark new world of work for the precariat. Sebastian Budgen joins us first with a report and analysis of the Gilets Jaunes, or Yellow Vest social movement, in France that was ignited by President Macron's so-called climate measures, hiking gas taxes and reducing the speed limit, on the backs of those increasingly unable to make ends meet while the wealthy were getting tax breaks. Macron's support has plummeted while the spontaneous Yellow Vest movement has the support of two-thirds of the population. The protesters have blockaded roads, erected barricades, danced in the streets, while police have responded with mass arrests and violence. We get Sebastian's understanding of this movement, its demands, politics, and its potential. Sarah Mason then joins us to explain what precarious work is like in the so-called gig economy. She's been driving for Lyft and explains in her article in The Guardian's long read for November called High Score, Low Pay, Why the Gig Economy Loves Gamification, about her experience, how workers are motivated, essentially in game mode, to do insane amounts of driving, and how the insertion of the algorithm into the traditional class struggle has changed the way workers can fight. Sarah says, the chat room is the modern version of a work stoppage, but it has limitations. We'll get our analysis when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. And today we're going to look at the Yellow Vest movement, also known as the Gilets Jaunes. Sebastian Budgen is with us, and he's an editor for Verso Books and a contributing editor for Jacobin Magazine and serves on the editorial board of Historical Materialism. He's joining us with the report and an analysis of this Yellow Vest movement, a social movement in France, that began by protesting President Macron's hike in the gas taxes and reduction of the speed limit, so-called climate change measures that were imposed on the backs of those who were already increasingly unable to make ends meet. President Macron's neoliberal politics are seen to favor the rich and the ultra-rich and are based on a very thin sliver of the population. His support has plummeted. The Yellow Vest movement began spontaneously and has grown tremendously, and it enjoys the support of perhaps two-thirds of the population. The protesters have blocked blockaded roads, erected barricades, and the police have responded with mass arrests and violence. Macron has conceded on the gas tax and raised the minimum wage, but many say it is too little too late and have called for his resignation. We're going to get Sebastian's understanding of this movement, its demands, its politics, and its potential. With all that, Sebastian Budgen, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Hi, Hi, very good to have you here. So let's just begin with what are the issues that have mobilized the uh, Yellow Vest or the Gilets Jaunes and who initially were mobilized? In other words, what was the social character of its supporters, at least in the beginning? Okay, well, as you say, the initial demands were focused around the increase in tax on gas, particularly diesel gas, and this was presented as a measure that was going to favor the transition to cleaner fuels and part of the general ecological transition. And allied to this were a number of other demands, like protests against the reduction of the speed limits on secondary lo- roads and so on. 
Quite quickly, though, beyond those initial demands, the movement began to take uh, build up momentum. A much wider variety of demands uh, and issues got put on the table, particularly to do with the cost of living, to do with the unfairness of the fiscal system in France, especially in the context where uh, important tax on, on the very wealthy had recently been abolished by Macron. And there was a perception of him giving tax breaks to the rich and to big companies. Also, issues to do with democracy and the lack of responsiveness of uh, the political elite to ordinary people. And also just questions of dignity, because mm-hmm. Macron is seen as considered by many to be extremely arrogant, contemptuous of ordinary people. And so the notion that you needed to be brought down a peg or two or taught a lesson in uh, humility has been an important feature of these protests. In terms of social composition, it's a very interesting and unusual movement because origins lie not in the usual bastions, either the Indian movement or the French left, not in the urban areas, but in the semi-rural areas, what you might call in the US white suburban or just beyond the suburban areas, smaller provincial towns, and even villages. And in terms of social composition, we're talking about, you know, a very heteroclite alliance of particularly of white-collar workers, of some manual workers, but also some elements of what is traditionally called the petit bourgeoisie, so artisans, self-employed, also some elements of lower management and retired people and some unemployed. So we're talking about a very range in terms of social composition, but much more weighted towards, if you like, low middle class rather than the organized working class. And also a very interesting feature, a very prominence of uh, women, particularly on uh-huh. these many uh, roadblocks and barrages that have been created around uh, roundabouts around the country. A very interesting and different kind of social composition in relation to previous protests in France, either the Nuit debout protests, which you'll remember, right. which were very much younger people with quite high educational background, even if they were economically insecure, or the big trade union protests. I want to go back to a few other things, but just on that, you know, that the Gilets Jaunes are workers, but not part of the workers' movement, and, you know, it isn't an official sort of trade union mobilization, as we've seen before. I was going to ask you, too, is this something that is caught, you know, on in the cities? We've seen, for example, you know, the violence around the, I think it was the Place de Bastille, and other places, but you mentioned that this started in the more rural and semi-rural areas. And people have referred to them as sort of plebeians or working people, some, you know, small artisans and shopkeepers, as you've mentioned. You also said white collar. One of the questions I wanted to ask just on the previous thing, Sebastian, is did Macron prepare the way by, you know, some sort of conversation at least about uh, the need for measures to reduce automobiles and address climate change? And did he at all try to be in any way, you know, not egalitarian, but at least more so about this, that this would be the job of the entire population, especially the fossil fuel industry and the rich? Or was the ecological crisis somehow seen to be, you know, the work of those who drive cars? Yeah, I mean, uh, clearly, Macron, as you know, on the international stage has tried to position himself as the anti-Trump, particularly on ecological questions. There was his uh, tweet or whatever it was, uh, make the planet great again, 
yeah. uh, and you know, positioning himself as the antithesis of Trump when Trump pulled out of the Paris uh, climate agreement. But it's fairly clear, I think, to most people that the kind of ecology that ecological transition that Macron is offering is basically a form of greenwashing, uh-huh. uh, extremely technocratic and top-down, not really based on any kind of mass investment that would provide, for example, Green New Deal-type you know, jobs for ordinary workers. And yes, a strong dose of moralism and individualistic you know, blaming of people who, who use cars in circumstances, many of which they have absolutely no choice because they've been priced out of living in cities, have thus chosen to live in semi-rural areas where to get to work, to take your children to school, to go shopping. A car is absolutely uh, fundamental. And so no, a, a clear, enormous cultural gap, if you like, between the people who are around Macron and, you know, often are urban dwellers who have no experience of this kind of lifetime and simply lifestyle and simply think it's a question of using one's car, you know, less or more sparingly or switching to an electric car rather than a diesel car, um, and not understanding that, you know, even the outlay for a new car or for a new heating system or insulation is something that many people can't afford, even if, if it comes with some kind of government aid along the way. Right. So, yes, there is no notion that social justice and ecological transition uh, can be allied in Macron's perspective. In terms of your question about uh, taking off in towns or not, I mean, the very interesting specificity of this movement is its geographical dispersion in non-urban areas and including whole sectors of the population that have had no experience of politicization or social protest beforehand. We just published a very interesting piece on the Verso blog about the social composition and the background of the sample that was studied. And, you know, about 50% of people who've never engaged in any kind of collective protest whatsoever have no organic relationship to the labor movement or to the left and in fact consider trade unions and other kinds of organizations like that with a great deal of distrust and, if not, outright hostility. So the convergence many are hoping for in terms of this kind of movement and the movement of the banlieue, of the uh, racialized populations in France, the urban suburbs, or indeed the organized working class has not come to pass yet. There have been attempts to move in that direction, which we can perhaps talk about. But the demonstrations in the towns are very interesting, in in Paris particularly, because you see people coming to Paris from way outside of Paris. Sometimes it's the first time they've ever visited the capital. It's kind of strange tourist experience for them to be tear-gassed on their first experience of Paris. But, you know, it's clearly a, a a whole stratum of the French population that is very distinct and different from previous protest movements, which also means, of course, it's much more contradictory and internally heterogeneous and can go in all sorts of directions, ideologically and politically. Well, and then the other thing, Sebastian, is that, as you've mentioned, that this is, you know, these are people often uh, first time coming to demonstrations, and the demands, at least in the beginning, were opposed to the gas tax, or so the anti-tax and anti-price hikes. And as you mentioned, they're supported by, you know, plebeian sections of the population. But it includes workers, but not necessarily, as you mentioned, organized workers, but often blue-collar and white-collar workers. But it's really interesting because there is this attempt to paint 
paint this as, you know, a movement that belongs on the right, you know, and to characterize the rebellion as sort of de facto right wing. And in fact, if you look at coverage here in the United States, which has been sparse, unbelievably hard to find, but it has been covered more on Fox News than elsewhere, is there, you know, they want to try to seize this It's the same kind of sector that would support, you know, the populist nationalist right in this country and elsewhere. So and then, as you also mentioned, that even though it started out, you know, talking about petrol and the prices, it seems that the conversation changed fairly quickly to issues of inequality, wage rises and social injustice. So just a little bit more, if you could, on why it's being, you know, why there's this or, or whether is it really something of the right or can you characterize it that way? Yeah, I mean, particularly in the Anglophone reception of this, there is an attempt to try and say this is basically exactly the same phenomenon as the Brexit vote or the Trump vote or some have compared it to the Five Star Movement in Italy. This is kind of the revenge or strike back of the so-called white working class against mm-hmm. urban elites of the left and, and so on. And, of course, there are people on the far right in France who would also like to portray it in this way. The former Front National and also neo-fascist groups have tried to engage with the movement. And there is obviously a, a kind of kernel of truth in the sense that we're talking about essentially white populations to start with, who in some cases, particularly the so-called spokespeople, although that's a complicated notion for this movement, which it doesn't have any structure or any delegation, there are a number of supposed spokespeople of the movement who do come from a right-wing or far-right background. But the attempt to try and portray this as a kind of libertarian in the American sense, Mm -hmm. anti-tax, anti-state, redneck, if you like, movement. So the notion that this is a redneck uh, libertarian or libertarian type of revolt is very misleading. The study that we published on the Verso blog in translation is very interesting on this. The sample uh, who asked where they position themselves politically answered that, you know, a third said they were either apolitical or neither left nor right. 15% said they were far left. 5% only uh, said they were far right. Broadly speaking, 42% were on the left. I suppose that means centre-left, not far-left, and 12% on the right. I suppose that means centre-right, not far-right, and 6% in the centre. So the notion that these were all fascists or pro-Marine Le Pen supporters is very misleading, although it is true that the areas that these protests are based in are areas, semi-rural areas, for example, where the Front National has historically and especially recently got very high votes. The other interesting thing is that in terms of the demand puts, the sample asked about immigration comes very, very low amongst the demands right. that they are raising. Now, of course, the Front National is trying to push this question forward, and the apparent terrorist attack the other day in Strasbourg may also put this more to the fore, and Macron himself put the question, quite surprisingly, of immigration centre stage in his recent response to the protests. But... So far, the issues of immigration and those issues that the far right consider their particular trademark, if you like, have been very much minimized in favor of more social demands about fiscal equality, about the cost of living, about the apparent double standard between the rich and ordinary working people, and so on.
This is really interesting, and I'm glad you mentioned the Verso blog. That's at the Verso Books website, and uh, listeners can just go there. And there's been a series of articles that have appeared pretty much daily since, what, about the 6th of December, 7th of December. And they're definitely worth reading if you want to get a real sort of picture of what's happening. But, Sebastian, I was going to ask you further about, you know, the sort of political, the way that you would characterize them. And you mentioned that immigration is quite low on uh, the scale of things that they're concerned about. And I wondered, too, is is this really just an all-white sort of protest? Because surely immigrants would be equally affected, especially in more rural areas with the attacks on the standard of living. Or I wanted to ask you whether or not the sort of uh, method of struggles adopted tell us anything about the politics. And I think you just said that they are horizontalist, that there's no real spokespersons. And it seemed from afar that it looks sort of like, you know, the kinds of movements that we had seen in the squares and in the occupations. But could you also say something about just the methods, the tactics that they're using, you know, focused on transportation, blockading roads, erecting barricades, and not starting out, say, with strikes or general strikes, more traditional forms that we're used to? Yes. So in terms of the forms of action and organization, as you say, this is very much a horizontalist movement use social media, particularly Facebook, very intensively. And that has its downside, of course. There is very heavy use by Facebook of by the far right of various forms of conspiracy theory and, mm-hmm. and so on. But it is very much of that nature, self-organized. There is a very strong refusal for it at the moment so far for it to give itself any formal structure and for it to give itself any formal representatives. Those who have been convoked by the Prime Minister, for example, to discuss with him have been disavowed by the movement as a whole. And there's a very strong distrust of the whole political system as a whole, as a bloc, the notion that there's a political caste, if you like, that reproduces itself both financially and and particular culture, that it, the bubble that it's in and so on. A very strong rejection of all of that with some on the more progressive end calling for a kind of sixth, uh, for a sixth republic, uh, a replacement of the very undemocratic fifth republic that uh, currently is in place in France. So that's very interesting. The, the range of actions are very varied. So they go from very soft actions, if you like, just setting up tables and uh, banners and so on at roundabouts and, you know, getting toots for support from car users who go past to filtering barrages where they slow down cars and lorries and, you know, let let pass those who give strong support and, you know, delay those who, who don't give strong support, which has led to some conflicts with some more irate and impatient car owners who are not sympathetic, you know, trying to ram through and, and there have been some fatalities. This is a form of, if you like, soft action that can, that takes place in all sorts of areas of France and involves, you know, groups of, you know, from 10 to 20, if not more, people and, and can obviously be forms of action that people in their downtime, in their breaks, or, you know, husbands and housewives or retired people can participate in. That's on the one hand, and then you, on the other end of the spectrum, these very spectacular demonstrations in the big towns like Paris, Bordeaux, Toulouse and so on, particularly on the weekend, so they're not involving strike action, as you say, Uh, they're weekend actions, but which involve extremely vigorous protests which clash with the police and in some ways are borrowing, even if unconsciously, 
some of the tactics of the of the so-called cortege de tête, the English-speaking world kind of called black bloc, although that's misleading, uh-huh. during last year and the year before's uh, protests against the labor laws. So they were very strong, if you remember, clashes between the younger people and the police. And even though that socially and even in age composition, these Gilets Jaunes protests are very different, in some ways they're adopting many of the same the same tactics. So there's there's a big range of of different types of action. Some of it's purely social media based. Some some of it is real life. It covers a whole range of things ideologically, from as I say, far left through to far right, with a very big number of people in the middle who are you know abstentionists or don't consider themselves up to now political or haven't really paid much attention to political matters. The junction between those kinds of movements and those kinds of protests in and other sectors of the population that you mentioned has to some extent happened during the big demonstrations in, uh, for example, in Paris, but not in an organized way or only in a very small-scale organized way. So the big trade union federation, the CGT, for example, has been very nervous about giving its support to the Gilets movement in any kind of serious way. Uh, there have been attempts by anti-racist groups to, you know, build bridges and, and protest on the same day and so on, but without liquidating their autonomy. There have, of course, been younger people and people from the Bonnie who have come and participated also. But it would be exaggerated to claim that the Gilets movement now, you know, fuses together all the different forms of social protest that we've seen in France. It has its distinctiveness and its specificity, even if its message can be considered to have, you know, a a much more general appeal. This is, of course, you know, takes up the next question that I was going to ask if there was really any connection. The one thing that seems very clear is that it's a spontaneous movement and a spontaneous movement that comes like you see elsewhere with a kind of rejection and revulsion about uh, neoliberal reforms that everyone sees as favoring the rich and then in order to pay for it by cutting services for the rest. And even in this regard, the climate measures that people may support but on the other hand, don't want to be the only ones to have to pay for it. And of all the interviews that, you know, we see of people in the street, it's literally that they can't make ends meet. And then, of course, the other remarkable thing is that how much support there is for this movement, that it resonates. And where everything I've said, seen says that it's, you know, two thirds of the population supporting this, even if maybe they're not all directively active in this movement. And I wanted to say, because you've been talking about it, if you look on social media, you see a kind of jubilant mood where people are dancing in the streets and, and you know, cars are honking in support. You know, it looks like it is something that the whole sort of country or much of the country wants to get behind. And on the other hand, we've seen the very violent response of the Macron government. And he seems to be incredibly tone deaf and defiant up until the point where he conceded. And even that, I'd like to ask what you thought of it. And and how do you sort of characterize Macron's response? Yeah, so on the first point, yes, clearly uh, a lot of things that comes out of the discussions with people on the different, for example, barrages or protests around roundabouts is that this is a form of socialization, if you like, for people who are often very, uh, have been hitherto very isolated and, and alienated without re- any real social contact in places, for example, where the local cafe and post office and local train line have all been closed down. You know, they've met people in their local area who they who they got on with, who they share a cause with. You know, it's a form of, of socialization, if you like, and also a place where people 
can discuss politics, although they're very keen to avoid party politics for the first time in a collective manner. So there's definitely a festive element to a lot of the protests that's going on. And even, I would say, the spectacular violence that you've seen in the clashes with the police are a reflection of a kind of pent-up rage that isn't channeled through the normal mechanisms because, as I say, many of these people are people who don't have a relationship to those kinds of normal forms of protest. Uh, and it takes a much more explosive form, in many cases, a sheer hatred, if you like, of the political regime, of the rich, of the police increasingly because of the police response. As far as Macron go is, goes, I mean, uh, you will remember that Macron was presented as the new John F. Kennedy, the right. new Obama, the new figure of great white hope for liberals because he was, you know, a neoliberal economically, but you no know, culturally and on sort of lifestyle issues and uh, societally he was considered to be, you know, a liberal in a, in a cultural sense. He quite clearly and quickly lost that appeal within France itself because of the quite remarkable you know, arrogance and the notion that he was simply going to, that he had some kind of mandate based on his very low initial you know, vote in the first round of the elections. And you know, as, as you all remember, he got a big vote in the second round because against him there was Marine Le Pen. So it was a vote against Marine Le Pen as much as a vote for him. But nevertheless, he took this as an indication that he had a, a mandate to push through, to ram through a series of reforms, economic and social reforms that he claimed previous governments had been too uh, scared or didn't have the guts to push through, and that allied with his manner and the way he talked down to people and seemingly didn't have any kind of notion of the reality of, of, of life for most people, uh, has created an enormous hatred, I would say, of him as a figure, the incarnation of everything that's out of touch and elitist about the French political and social system. Right, and it's, it's telling that, you know, when he conceded on the gas tax and said that he was going to raise the minimum wage, that he did so in this gilded office with, you know, glittering gold leaf and everything else. It just, you know, sort of emphasized more how out of touch he is. But I wanted to ask how you would characterize the direction of this movement, and do you see it as moving in a left-wing direction, and is there any point in trying to characterize it that way? And, you know, some of the authors, even on your Verso blog, have called it somewhat like May 1968 or insurrectionary or looking at it, you know, going back all the way to the San Colot movement. I'm just wondering how you yeah, see that. I think that. it would be a mistake to compare it to May 68, because May 68, uh, you know, the the specific feature of May 68, as we all remember, is not just the student protest, but the fact that they then were joined by an enormous general strike, which was in large part led by organized labor. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, there, there was the notion that, you know, the country as a whole um, could be brought to a halt by the working class in some kind of alliance with the students and other sectors of the population. That's not the kind of situation we're talking about uh, with the Gilets Jaunes movement. And we are talking about something that is ideologically extremely contradictory. I think it's very likely, for example, that uh, you know the initial poll seems to show that the Front National will do well electorally out of this, uh, these events because the conventional right is collapsing and they're picking up many of the votes from people who would normally vote for the centre-right. And, you know, some of the themes are congruent with things that the, the anti-elitist discourse that Marine Le Pen puts forward. 
On the other hand, the social issues about the minimum wage, about the cost of living, about equality and so on are you know, traditionally left-wing movements. But again, this is in a country where the centre-left has also collapsed. The socialist party is almost uh, a completely uh, empty shell. So both the traditional poles of you know, left-right politics in France are in, in a state of implosion. And you have this center data movement, um, which also now seems to be panicked by the Macron movement, by these protests, and, and is backtracking and, and not knowing exactly how to react. And then, you know, on the end of both polls, both the radical left and the far right are, are trying to position themselves. So it's a very complicated and ideologically diverse movement, and other events Perhaps, for example, the apparent terrorist attack or other events may also have an impact on it. And there is also an open question how long the movement will be able to sustain itself without yeah. any structure, especially now we're going into the holiday season. So all these are open questions. I think it's clear, though, that the, the left and the labor movement, if it continues, especially in the case of the CGT, to hold back from the movement and not to engage with it fully, is missing a historic opportunity to help push it in a, in a progressive direction. As far as all the rest is concerned, I think the jury's out. Well, just one final super quick question, Sebastian, and that is whether or not you think that this movement will stop without the resignation of President Macron. In other words, is there any way he survives this? Well, I mean, it did look, obviously, initially after the the big, the last but one demonstration that there was even talk of a helicopter being prepared to spirit him out of the Elysee if the protesters ever got to the palace. So there was the notion that state power seemed to be, you know, cracking and that, you know, the very popular slogan of uh, Macron démission, Macron should resign, was, was gaining strength. I think it's clear that he's managed to calm down at least sections of the movement with his big concessions. I mean, they're big, symbolically for him, they're very big concessions because he well, said he would never back down on anything and that he would just push through. And his reputation, both among capitalists, but I don't think we're talking about a situation in which short-term resignation or premature legislative elections are likely at the moment. The situation is so explosive and unpredictable that, you know, who knows what will happen in the new year. Okay, well, we're going to have to leave it there. But as always, Sebastian, you deliver no disappointment. Thank you so much for this penetrating analysis and even speculation about what might follow in this movement in France that we call the Yellow Vest or the Gilets Jaunes. Sebastian is an editor for Verso Books, also a contributing editor for Jacobin magazine. There's a lot of pieces on Jacobin as well. And he also serves on the editorial board of historical materialism. Thanks for joining us today, Sebastian Budgen. Thanks, Susie. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to have Sarah Mason with us for the very first time. Sarah is a grad student in sociology at UC Santa Cruz. Her research is on automation, technological unemployment, labor, and social movements. Before going to grad school, Sarah was and still is a longtime radical activist. But in 2016, she became a Lyft driver. 
And that's what we're going to talk about. She's written an article about her experience as a Lyft driver that was published in the December issue of Logic Magazine, and it has been picked up by The Guardian. The understanding that Sarah gained from this work experience, which she's sharing with us today, you know, I like to say it adds a tool to the arsenal of the class struggle that we can use to emancipation. So welcome to Jacobin Radio, Sarah Mason. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to have you on. And so I wanted to say as well that, of course, your work as a Lyft driver sort of exemplifies this stark new world of the work of the precariat, what we're calling the precariat. So I want for you to explain how workers are motivated, essentially in game mode, to do insane amounts of driving and how the insertion of the algorithm into the traditional class struggle has changed the way that workers can fight. And in the article, Sarah describes some of the modern version of the mass sign-off or work stoppage in the chat rooms, along with the limitations that that puts forward. So we're going to get her analysis. So let's just begin, Sarah Mason, with why you were attracted to this job. After all, becoming a driver, oftentimes I ask drivers when I do it, they are either moonlighting or they've been laid off. And this is a, always seemed to be a temporary phenomenon, but they do it for a long time. It doesn't exactly offer uh, high wages. In fact, just the opposite. But I guess maybe you could answer the question, did you do it because you get freedom or autonomy in exchange for the lower returns? Yeah. So initially, the reason why I started driving was because I I had a car and (laughs) I needed money. Right. But I think the second reason is was more related to sort of the broader economic landscape. I had been applying to more traditional jobs for a few months, but nothing came of it. I wasn't getting any interviews. And, you know, the amount of time that it takes you to look for work and to apply for work and to rewrite your cover letter and customize your CV, you know, it takes a lot of time. And -hmm. there's really no guarantee that you'll see a job at the end of it. And so with Lyft, I signed up. And within something like, I don't know, like three days, I started to work and there was no interview. There was no cover letter. There was no waiting period. If your driving history is clean and if you pass the vehicle inspection, you can almost start driving immediately. And I think for me, that was a big draw at the time. I really just wanted to put an end to the very labor intensive process of constantly looking for work. You've hit on something that I think is extremely important, Sarah. And I always tell people that Looking for work is much harder than actually doing the work. And essentially, you know, and essentially what you have to do is beg some employer to exploit you. In fact, really beg them to exploit you. And then once you get the job, then, you know, you're exploited, but at least you have a subsistence. And what you're describing is probably, I guess, what is the attraction? Immediate compensation. Right. You sort of put an end to that very agonizing process. For me, it was. It was a relief. I think the other reason that people are drawn to this job is really for a lot of people, it's a second or a third job. Mm -hmm. I mean, the cost of living is going up. But as you know, and and I know you've discussed this on your show, um, wages and salaries are not going up. And so most working people are trying to find ways to sort of supplement their income. And I think this is 
one way in which in which people are able to do it. I think another another reason is, as you said, you know, people use it as a bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're in between jobs, and I think. Lastly, um, the flexibility of the work is really important. And like you said, you know, people are drawn to this idea of autonomy and freedom. And I think, you know, Lyft and Uber's marketing strategy is really meant to tap into this desire. And specifically, they're able to tap into people's very real hatred of shift work or, you know, having to be in a fixed location for a fixed amount of time, no matter what. Mm-hmm. With, with Lyft and Uber, I mean, you, you technically can turn the app on and off, which is something that you can't do when you're working for, say, Starbucks. Um, and, and almost every driver that I've talked to will say that they like this. They like the flexibility, and it's something that I enjoy as well. But I think it's important to note that you don't have complete flexibility. Like, there are certain <laughs> pressures that sort of force you into a pattern of work that oftentimes resembles shift work. So, there are times of the day where it's just more lucrative to drive. And I figured this out, you know, very early on. I would often drive during those times, not because I, I wanted to, but because economically it just made the most sense. You don't get paid to wait. You want to drive when you know that rides are coming in. And, yeah, while there's a certain amount of, of flexibility um, and drivers are certainly responding to this, I guess the point that I want to make is that it's like it, it's a constrained flexibility. And as I talk about in the article, it's often a coerced flexibility. Exactly. And I wanted to go into that. But what you've just said is incredibly important, because a lot of what we hear now from, let's say, baristas or others who are working in retail, that they never know what their shift's going to be, and they can't arrange childcare, and their lives are disrupted, and their sleep's disrupted. And that, you know, the algorithms that design their shift to correspond Mm. to the need is inhuman. And it seems Mm. like, you know, you could imagine that for Uber and Lyft and other kinds of ride apps that this seems, wow, a way for the worker to have that kind of control over their own work process, even though, and as we'll go into now, that's not always the case. So let's go right Mm. into that, Sarah. And that is at the center of your account is this idea of the game. Michael Burway developed it in his work, which was called Manufacturing Consent. So how does the game work, let's say, for that, and then how does it work for Lyft and Uber drivers with the app? And in that, I'd like, as you do in your article, Sarah Mesa, explain the capacity to really get people to do intense focused work, you said drive like a maniac, that in fact is very beneficial to the company. How did it motivate you to do so much driving that of a very high quality? And so, and then how did that work, game work for Burway to manufacture consent, say, in the factory setting? Yeah, so I was really fascinated by uh, Michael Burroughboy's ethnographic work. He worked as a machine operator at a manufacturing plant outside of Chicago in the 1970s a very, you know, industrial industrial setting. Um, but one of the questions that he had is, you know, he wanted to understand why workers worked as hard as they did. Why did they cooperate with speed-ups? Why would they seek out, you know, new ways to become productive during downtime? And one of the things that he observed is he noticed that a big part of it had to do with the way that the production process was organized, mm-hmm. which was like, basically like a game. So workers had to overcome, you know, a number of obstacles and challenges in order to meet the production quotas. 
and then, of course, get incentive pay. And he noticed that workers took a lot of pleasure in this and that it, it sort of gave people this outlet to express their creativity and their intellect. People were always looking for shortcuts and ways to sort of refine their technique. And so in a way, the game took what was sort of previously a a monotonous kind of soul-crushing form of work and uh, turned it into a space where workers could sort of express, you know, their personal personal skill. And he noticed a, a couple of other things, too, that I think were really interesting. You know, one of the things that he noticed was because workers were sort of set to compete against one another, mm-hmm. um, it encouraged lateral conflict. It, it put workers into conflict with other workers. It also put workers into conflict with their machines and with themselves because they, you know, were often sort of up against their own physical limitations um, and stamina. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, what Buravoy ultimately concludes is the the way that this functioned is it moved sort of conflict away from the boss. And I think another important observation that he made is that it really gave, because it gave people this sense of control and autonomy over their work, if they were struggling, they saw it as a personal failing. Like they, they felt responsible as if it was the result of their the, the poor choices that they made on the job. And so I noticed a lot of similarities between what Buravoy described and what I was experiencing myself as a rideshare driver. And so I started to research it and I found that gamification actually has a very long history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things I try and explore in the article is really how sophisticated it has become, um, specifically because of the, the medium of the smartphone. And it's sort of taken gamification, I think, to the next level. Um, There's actually a really great article, if if people are interested, that was published last year in the New York Times. And it's called How Uber Uses Psychological Tricks to Push Its Driver's Buttons. And the article really talks about how these platforms are gamifying their devices with the help of behavioral psychologists in order to, to nudge and ultimately control worker behavior. And of course, here's a question. Is it different from other Mm. forms of informal work? And so maybe Mm -hmm. you could just go a little deeper into this notion of the network's device and then even the algorithmic management before we go into how you got induced to work so hard. Yeah. So I think there are a lot of similarities between platform-mediated work and precarious or informal labor. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's different from other forms of precarious labor in that it relies exclusively on the network device or the smartphone to aggregate and deploy workers and consumers while also using these very sophisticated algorithms to match, supervise, control, and and manage workers and also consumers to some extent, although that's, you know, not the focus of, of my article. But, you know, the, the plat- these platforms are also able to collect a vast amount of user data, and we don't actually know what is being done with that. And so I think in some ways, this is is what sort of makes this form of work distinct. I also think it's important to note that Uber and Lyft are what's known as lean platforms. So another way in which they're unique is that they don't actually own the assets that make rideshare work possible. They don't own the cars. They don't own the smartphones. Um, And of course, they don't, you know, employ the drivers 
who operate them. All of the costs, the maintenance costs, the training, depreciation, all of it is completely shifted onto the drivers. And I can talk, if you want, I can talk a little bit about the precarious position that drivers are in in terms of protections. Yeah. And just before you do that, because as you're describing this, Sarah Mason, it sounds like an almost hailing back to feudalism in a way where the craftsman owns his means of production and produces it and has to sell it on his own. But in this case, it's it's in a very modern setting and you have to own your means of production, right, which is your car. Um, That's right. And you have to pay for your own insurance, presumably, and everything else that goes with that, keeping it clean and doing everything else. So, yeah, please go into that a little bit more deeply. Yeah. So not only, you know, are you made to assume all of the the responsibilities in terms of, you know, what is actually required to complete the service, the car, the fuel, the insurance, the cleaning, all of that, but you also have really no protections. Companies like Uber and Lyft can deactivate you and and you have really no recourse when this happens. Um, There's no communication prior to your deactivation. I think in a way it's sort of the flip side of what I was saying earlier about how sort of instantaneous the sign-up process is. You know, you can just sort of become a driver in an instant, but at the same time, the flip side of it is you can also be deactivated. And, you know? and just before you go into that, so you're independent contractors, and I know that this has been an issue in Europe and other places too, like really, are you employees or are you independent co- right. contractors? And so, yeah, it's actually interesting. So now, you know, there are a number of different legal battles that are taking place, not just in the United States, but across Europe. In, in New York, City actually, Uber now has to treat its drivers. There's 80,000 Uber drivers in New York City. They they have to treat their drivers now as employees in the sense that they have to pay them a minimum wage, and they also have to cover their unemployment insurance benefits. And that's been a victory, but it's unfortunately not the norm. And so. When drivers are deactivated, you know, you're unable to work and there, there's an appeals process, but it's, it's not transparent. Um, sometimes drivers are able to win in an appeals process, but it can take up to, you know, two to three weeks. And during that time, you're not being paid. Right. And this is actually the subject of, of a petition that was delivered to Uber headquarters in San Francisco last month. And the person who actually delivered that petition was tackled to the ground by a security officer outside of Uber headquarters. So, Sarah, maybe we should go into, like, the further question about the game that explains its ability to induce people to work harder and harder and better than, say, mere material awards could elicit, you know, and you go back in your article that people will be able to read in The Guardian, that for Marx it was coercion, but now... You know, what is it? How is it that people are induced into this sort of ethos that they, you know, work so hard? And you write at the end of your article that after driving like a maniac, in other words, turning in very high performance that was measured by driver's ratings, that there was really no benefit, uh, just a better sense of self-worth. Well, that's, of course, some benefit, but doesn't pay for food. So in other words, after a point, getting ever higher ratings failed to bring higher wages, and yet you describe the way workers strive for those higher ratings as you did. So that really is the question of why. Why did you want to be a highly rated driver? 
And if I could just quote you, you're saying that this is the thing that is so brilliant and awful about Lyft's and Uber's gamification. It preys on our desire to be of service, to be liked, to be good. On weeks that I'm rated highly, I am more motivated to drive. On weeks that I'm rated poorly, I'm more motivated to drive. It works on me, even though I know better. Yeah, I think this is this is something that I am still trying to think about and explore. And I don't know that I have an answer but describe I, it for us, yeah. I mean, so there are a number of different techniques that the company uses to try and motivate drivers. And I think partly they have to do this because they're, they are unable or unwilling to, to use financial incentives. I, I want to be clear that, like, at the basis of this is still coercion. Mm-hmm. Like, I, 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 in another part of of the article I talk about, you know, it's better to make $9 an hour than to make no dollars an hour. (laughs) Um, And that that really is sort of the foundation upon which I'm doing this work. But yeah, on top of it, you know, they sort of build in all of these mechanisms into the application to try and promote certain types of behavior. And I think, you know, one of the ways they do that is, is through the rating system. Another way that they do that is I don't drive for Uber, but I am aware that Uber offers that, you know, you can collect badges <laughs> as a driver, um, you know, for excellent customer service. So there are a number of people in online forums who, who talk about, you know, what badges they've received. And, and so that's another sort of immaterial um, reward that people, that people get. But I, I think, you know, ultimately it really gets at, something that is, you know, at least in my experience of, of wanting wanting to be of service and wanting to be helpful to people. There was something about when people would leave comments thanking me for getting them to the airport on time. You know, they, they <laughs> thought they would miss, miss their flight. You know, something about that, I don't know if it was, if it's just, you know, being a, a human or a decent person, but it, it, it felt, it feels good. It feels good to know that this thing that you're spending time doing it's helpful. And I was just sort of noticing the way in which that could be used to kind of manipulate my behavior as a driver or get me to do certain things that I wouldn't normally do. This is really amazing. So, of course, this leads directly to the question then of how these drivers can win better working conditions for themselves, and that is organizing efforts, the ways to fight, and, of course, the limitations of the ways. And in the article, you describe the chat room as a kind of lo- the locus of a modern version of a work stoppage or and a place where things like a mass log-off is regularly discussed. So that's, you know, one thing that I'd like you to explain. And then we'll go into the other thing is where now regulations are being imposed on these ride apps, like Uber is banned in several European countries. And then we'll get into what's happened in New York. Yeah. So the online group is a really important space for Lyft and Uber drivers, I think, because unlike in a traditional sort of workplace where you have a fixed location, maybe you have a break room, um, you at least are interacting with other, other employees in some kind of physical shared space with Lyft and with Uber and with a lot of this other platform-mediated work, you're really, uh, you're very isolated. And it can be difficult to connect with other drivers while you are doing your work. And so 
the online space, the virtual space, is actually um, a very important space for drivers to sort of, not just to organize, but to, to talk about things that they're experiencing at work, to ask questions, to try and get insight. And so, yeah, one of the things that I have noticed is being a member of these online groups is that people will regularly sort of suggest because of how they understand the algorithm to work, which is that they think that surge pricing or these increased fares are occur when there is a low supply of drivers mm-hmm. and a high amount of demand. So one of the interesting things that I've observed is that people will have tried to organize mass logoffs in an attempt to kind of game the game. They think that if everyone logs off at a certain time in coordination, that the algorithm will cause the pricing to surge. Or in Lyft, it's called primetime pricing. So it will activate primetime pricing. And And I found that really fascinating because, you know, from a perspective of, from the perspective of, of a labor organizer, you might look at that and, and think, well, this is what this is, is it's a work stoppage. It's basically right. people trying to organize to stop work. But again, this is sort of where I, I found Burravoy to be very useful and insightful in trying to understand this phenomenon because the goal of the stoppage was not to sort of use our power as drivers or workers to sort of place demands on on Uber or Lyft. It was instead to sort of reproduce consent to the game and the rules of the game mm. um, and, and to try to game the game. And so it's a question that I'm still interested in, and, and I am conducting research, interviewing drivers, trying to sort of get a better understanding of what's really going on. But yeah, that's that's one thing that I that I talk about. This is really uh, fascinating because in a way the chat room counteracts the isolation of mm. uh, of the job because it allows people to actually compare notes or in this sense you say organize some kind of mass action that is in their interest because surge prices are in the interest of the drivers they get more compensation. But Let's just finally talk about the other side of it, which is what we might see in the future, too. You've seen that Uber is banned in several European countries, Mm. and the advent of Uber and Lyft has created a drastic drop in the standard of living of, say, taxi drivers in New York City. And we should mention that all over the world, taxi drivers have been unionized or at least have associations, but now, mm-hmm. you know, you have this threat from the rideshare apps. And so the drivers in New York City have been left deeply indebted because they have this very peculiar situation where they pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for their medallion. And they have to have that medallion, t- you know, that's that's their means of production in the sense. That's their car plus the medallion that allows them to work and makes it different than showing up in a factory. But now they can no longer secure the benefits that the medallion was supposed to bring and they're seeing a drastic drop in their ability to survive and we've even seen increasing suicides. So that's on the one side. Can you just talk a little bit about whether or not you've encountered this, that people have said, well, you know, you're scabbing on taxi drivers unions by driving or Mm. how do you see organizing, you know, that will push for everybody to have better standard or form of organization? Mm. Yeah, so earlier this week, 
Roy Kim, who was a taxi driver in New York City, was the eighth taxi driver uh, to kill himself just this year. Mm. And so, yeah, there's, and I, and I think this is part of, of why, you know, the Taxi Drivers Alliance has been so successful in New York City in sort of lobbying the city council to force Uber to pay its drivers a minimum wage. Additionally, the, you know, as I said earlier, the New York Unemployment uh, Insurance Board has also told Uber that it that it needs to now pay unemployment benefits to its workers. And so this is a huge, huge victory for the 80,000 drivers in New York City. And it's also it also, of course, comes from, I think, this increasingly militant organization, uh, the Taxi Drivers Alliance. I think so outside of the United States and outside of New York City, there has been a growing wave of strikes and organizing among platform-mediated workers. Notes from Below, which is an online publication that has done, I think, the best reporting on platform worker organizing in Europe, just recently posted a report on a workers' assembly that happened in Brussels, um, which actually resulted in the creation of uh, the Transnational Federation of Couriers. And... You know, this assembly, it included 60 couriers, all of whom worked for either Uber Eats, Deliveroo, Fedora. Um, And, you know, their demands are similar to what platform-mediated workers have have been demanding in other places, which is, you know, they want to see an end to the piecework pay um, or the pay-by-delivery system. Right. And they also want greater transparency on the use of algorithms and user data. And again, that, that sort of goes back to... Really, it's been a really radicalizing thing, I think, for a lot of drivers, the problems with deactivation. I mean, there's, you know, there's very, very little reason given as to as to why, you know, you just wake up one morning and you can't log on to your, <laughs> to your app. You find out you, you've been deactivated. So that's the um, most impersonal way of being fired imaginable. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah, and, you know, in the Bay Area, there have been recently some efforts to organize drivers you know i mentioned the group gig workers rising that delivered that petition to uber and so i think this as this form of work is sort of growing um and and increasing numbers of people are relying on it either as their primary income or really necessary secondary source of income i think we will see um increasing mobilization and organization, what form that takes or what direction that takes, of course, is to be decided. Okay. Well, Sarah, we've run out of time, but I want to thank you so much. First, for like translating this work experience into a form that we can all understand and build on in terms of organizing. And congratulations for getting that picked up, not just by Logic Magazine, but by The Guardian, getting huge audience. I've been speaking with Sarah Mason, and she's a grad student in sociology at UCSC, researching labor, social movements, automation, and technological employment. But as I mentioned before, she went to grad school. She was a Lyft driver and, of course, as well, a longtime radical activist. And all this comes together in what you've just heard. Sarah Mason, thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thank you so much.
Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.